Welcome, everybody. If you're visiting today, we're especially glad uh, you're here. Uh, last week, we started a two-part sermon. Uh, if you missed it last week, I'm going to do a little bit of a review, but you really need to go on the website, hear it there, or uh, pick up uh, a CD of it at the information table after the service today. Uh, what we're doing is we're addressing this horrible habit that we all have of comparing ourselves to other people. We know we shouldn't. It makes us feel superior when others compare themselves to us. And we feel insecure. We feel inferior um, when we compare ourselves to other people. And basically, the bottom line um, for this whole thing is this simple statement. There's no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. Let's just say that together. There's no win in comparison. As soon as I look over there, I see your car, or you look over there, you see my house, or I look over there and see what your kids are doing, or whatever. I'm comparing uh, to you, or you're comparing yourself to me, and there's just no win. There's no advantage. There's no finish line. There's no aha moment. Uh, The reason there's no win in comparison is because there's always somebody with a bigger what? A bigger er, okay? She's skinny-er. He's rich-er. They're nice-er. Their kids are smart-er. Uh, there's always somebody with a bigger er, and if you're somebody who has to have like an est, uh, you have to be the smartest, the skinniest, uh, the whatever est. You may achieve it for a while, uh, but then guess what happens? You become older er, and then you become the oldest, and you just can't maintain it. Uh, so there's no win in comparison. And we landed last week uh, at this question. It's such an important question. It's a question that everybody should wrestle to the ground, and perhaps uh, the younger you are, uh, the more serious you have to take this question. It's this question, who or what am I going to look to as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? Who or what am I going to look to as my reference point to tell me I'm okay? Because I want to know if I'm okay. You want to know you're okay. If you're a man, you want to know you have what it takes. If you're a woman, you want to know uh, that you're lovable, that you're cherishable, that you're acceptable. So I want to know if I'm okay. You want to know you're okay. And the question is, who or what are you going to look to to discover whether or not you're okay? I know this about you. Even though I, I might not know you, I know this about you. You're looking somewhere. All of us look somewhere. We have a mirror Uh, somewhere, some reflection point that I look at to determine if I'm okay. Do I have what it takes? Am I lovable? Do I have it? Am I with it? Uh, So this question is really a very important question. And last week we answered it uh, through the lens of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's a God who loves you so much, who sees you not just as a person, not just as creation, but as a son or a daughter who sees you as a child. And you've been invited to relate to that God as Father God. Not a reflection of your earthly father, but with the perfection of Father God. And you've been invited to view you through the eyes of God. God the Father, who loves you unconditionally. Now, as strange as that may sound to you, the options are really terrible. Because apart from entering into a relationship with God, you will spend the rest of your life trying to find a mirror somewhere that's going to be an inaccurate mirror. And you're going to spend the rest of your life comparing yourself 
uh, to other people and to the people around you, and there is no win in comparison. Besides, when we compare ourselves to other people, and maybe this is just me, but I tend to compare myself to, uh, to their highlight reel, to someone else's highlight reel. I don't compare my mundane Monday through Sunday life to another person's mundane Monday through Sunday life. I compare myself to their highlight reel. You know, I leave out the blooper reel. I leave out the deleted scenes. And I compare myself to the best of them. Or I compare myself only to their success. And I don't even acknowledge the years that they spent behind the scenes, in the trenches, uh, working and waiting, not knowing if they would have success. It's absolutely frustrating. There's no win in comparison. Because comparison is a terrible mirror. And God, as we said last week, God has invited you. And here's the statement we left off with. You're to take your cue about you, not from the people around you, but you're to take your cue about you from the one who made you, loves you, and redeems you. You're to take your cue about you from the one who made you, who loves you, and redeems you. It's as if God said, look, I want you to look into my eyes and then determine if you're okay, if you're lovable, if you have what it takes, if you're acceptable. You may look at the mirror and, and get depressed, but God has never looked into your mirror and wished that he saw someone else. So what we said last week is when you're tempted to look to the left and right and compare to look to God, to take your cue from him. Uh, if you don't do that, the entire Bible says that you are going to have trouble. Remember we said last week that the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived, he says that envy rots the bones. And James, the brother of Jesus, he ought to know what he's talking about. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Uh, every evil habit coming out of comparison. And then, and then Job, he weighed in on this as well. Job said, resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. There's no win in comparison. So today, uh, as we wrap this up and we kind of tie all this together, I want to read to you a parable that Jesus taught. It's found in Matthew 25. And a couple of things before we do that, just to kind of, uh, things you need to know about a parable. I just want to get everybody on the same page. Uh, a parable is a made-up story. Jesus just made these stories up. None of this stuff ever really happened. He wasn't lying. He was just telling a story uh, to, to make one single point. He's just making a story to illustrate a point. Generally, parables are given to make one simple point. In Matthew 25, and in that whole section of the New Testament, Jesus is just giving parable back to back to back to back to back. Now, sometimes Jesus would say after a parable, let me explain that to you. Let me explain what that parable meant. Sometimes he would just finish the parable and walk off, and everyone would be confused. Or sometimes he would sit down with his disciples and he would say, hey guys, do you have any idea what that parable meant? And they would say, no. And he would explain to them the parable. And in this instance, Jesus just finishes one parable and keeps going, and he does parable after parable. And if you read the whole section of parables, it begins to make sense of what he is communicating. The other thing about a parable, before we get going, is when Jesus would begin teaching a parable, he would begin with a statement like this. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. 
And parables were a way of helping us understand the way God views the world. Okay? Parables were a way of understanding, helping us understand the way God views us and how we interact with the world and interact with His kingdom. So parables are fascinating, they're important, they're easy to get confused. In this particular parable, there's kind of a surprise ending. So Matthew 25, uh, this is called the parable of the talents. And some of you may be familiar with this. In the New International Version, um, it's talking about uh, money as talent. Uh, but, and it's talking about gold. But uh, a talent could be any measure of money. It's just referring to gold uh, in this translation. But a talent could be gold. It could be silver. It was just basically a measure of money. Okay, now that I've told you all about it, we're going to march through it. Matthew twenty-five, fourteen. Jesus is talking. He says, again, it, it being the kingdom of heaven, so right in the middle of a bunch of parables, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Now, he didn't give them this wealth. The master, this wealthy man, he says, I'm going to allow you servants to manage my money while I'm gone. I'm going to allow you to manage different amounts of my wealth and you, I expect you to do with my wealth what I would do with my wealth. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. So like any boss, any manager, any director, any department head, uh, he looked at these different people and thought, well, you've got a lot of talent, I'm going to give you five bags. And you, you've got some good managerial skills, I'm going to give you two bags. And you... Wow, I'm going to give you one bag. Because you know what? And again, this is a made-up story. This manager, this wealthy guy knows that all the people that work for him, they don't have the same skill set. So according to their skill set, he gave them responsibility to manage. Now, when you read a parable, the first thing you should ask is, where am I in the parable? Because you're in there. And the other question you should ask is, where is God? Because he's in there too. So let's just say for the sake of argument that you're the guy with two bags. Because that's really how you and I, we live our life. There's always someone with more. There's always someone with less. Um, you know, you've got two bags, and that's just the life we lead. Uh, Matthew 25, uh, 15. Then he went on a journey, the rich guy did. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So he went out, he invested his money, and over time he was able to double his master's money. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. So the guy with two bags, he went out too, he invested his money, he worked, and he traded with that money. The next thing you know, he had a return, he had doubled his master's money. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, when Jesus said that, his audience went, ooh, that's bad. This guy takes you know, one bag of, his, of money, and he's thinking, what can I do with one bag of money? If you give me five bags, yeah. If you give me two bags, I can do something with that. But one bag, verse 19, after a long time, after a long time, after a long time, the reason why that's important is when you read all of Jesus' parables, after a long time means after a lifetime. After I've lived my whole life. After you've lived your entire life. 
After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. In other words, he's going to ask, what did you do with, with what you had? The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me. You didn't give this to me. You didn't even loan this to me. You entrusted this to me. And this is what you allowed me to manage that belonged to you. You entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, to which Jesus' audience would say, a few things? What are you talking about, a few things? Five bags of gold? That's 40 years' worth of wages. Even if it was silver, that was years and years of wages. That's not a few things. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. In other words, the manager did what any good boss, any good company owner, any good entrepreneur would do. He would say, you know what? You were faithful with a little bit of responsibility. I'm going to give you more responsibility. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then verse 25, at this point, the soundtrack kind of changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the music isn't so happy anymore. The, the guys that doubled their money, they were waiting for the man to return. They were, they were looking forward to the man to return so they could tell them what they had done. Uh, but this guy with one who buried the money, he's probably not waiting around for the rich guy to return. In fact, when he heard the rich guy was coming back, he's like, where did I bury that thing? What, what am I? Matthew 25, verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, this is so interesting. He doesn't start off with the phrase, you entrusted me. Somehow he lost sight of the fact that this was entrusted to him to do something with. Instead, he starts pointing his finger at the master. Before he even talks about what he did or didn't do with the money, he points his finger at the master to say, now before I even tell you what I didn't do or did do with the money, I just want you to know this is kind of your fault. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I know that you're a, a winner-takes-all kind of guy. I know you're a hard driver. I know that you get more than your fair share. You don't leave anything in the margin. You don't leave anything on the table. I know what kind of guy you are, so I was afraid. Now, before you even get mad at me, you need to understand this is really your fault because you scared me to death. And anybody in my situation would have done what I did because of the way that you are. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Not here's what you entrusted to me, but here's what belongs to you. I'm going to give it back in the, in, to you in the same exact measure that you gave it to me. Verse 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. And the little Greek word wicked there can be translated uh, worthless. You worthless, lazy servant. Now, before we move on, notice this and write this into your notes. He didn't do anything bad. He just didn't do anything. He didn't do anything bad. He just didn't do anything. 
And he's not mad at the servant because he did something bad. He's mad because he didn't do anything. He's not mad because he did something immoral or something illegal. He just didn't do anything. Verse 26, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And Jesus' audience is going, yeah, that's what I would have done. At least you could have done that. I mean, he was lazy. He didn't even take it to the bank. He dug a hole. He didn't see this as something entrusted to him to do something with. Verse 28, take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. Oh, no, Jesus, that's not fair. I mean, you should take it from him and and give it to the guy who started with two bags because he has less. Or you should take it from him and split it equally between uh, the guys who have the guy with four and the guy with ten. But every good manager, every good boss, every good business owner, every person who's ever tried to do anything in life knows that you give more opportunity to the people uh, who do best with the opportunity you've already given them. The guy with five went to ten. Of course I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to bet on the winner. And then the guy in the parable, uh, he does this little sermon. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which we immediately go, oh my goodness, he sent him to hell? Okay, wait, wait, what are you saying? Well, obviously Jesus is saying here, if you don't manage your money well, you go to hell. Let's pray. No, he doesn't send him to hell. Remember, this is a story. Okay, I mean, he's a rich guy. He can't send anyone to hell. But obviously, there's a lot of symbolism here. And we'll get to that in a bit. But, but what does this mean in the context of the parable? It means that he said, okay, you're not going to be with me. He says to the servant, you're not going to be in my inner circle. Send this guy outside. What does weeping and gnashing of teeth mean? Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth isn't pain. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is frustration. Haven't you ever gone, oh, oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Oh, I should have sold that earlier. Oh. And weeping, I mean, weeping is, is focusing on your missed opportunity. And Jesus, because he's the brilliant communicator, just goes on to the next parable. Jesus just moves on. Now, now, when you read the rest of them, here's what becomes very clear. This is it. What you have is less important than what you do with what you have. What you have, what you have, what you have been given, if I can, what you have been, if I could use a Jesus word, what you have been entrusted with is far less important than what you do with what you have. What you have is not the point. What you have is less important than what you do with what you have. I mean, we know this intuitively. If you stop and think about it, if you stop and think about the successful people you know, the less than successful people you know, if you think about the people who started off with a lot and squandered it, if you think about the people that started off with little end up with a lot, it's just kind of intuitive. The issue isn't what you have or what you start off with, 
The issue is what are you going to do with what you have? And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, the economy of God, works under this premise. Uh, let me illustrate this uh, for you this way. You are, for the time being, a bookshelf. And you're made up of everything on this bookshelf. Uh, you have family. They may not be as cute as this family, but you have family. You have relatives of some sort. may not be 2.5 kids and a dog, but you have relatives. You have family. You have a certain amount of time. You have a certain amount of time uh, left in your life. You have a certain amount of time in the day. And it's different for everyone. Yes, scientifically, we all have the same amount of time in a day. But if you've got little kids at home, you have less time uh, than other people. Say amen. If you are in debt and you're working to get out of debt, uh, you are under, your time is decided for you. You have to work. You've got a bill coming. You have to do this amount of work to make that bill. You have a certain amount of money. Everyone in here has a different amount of money. You have a network of friends. You have people you influence. You have uh, where you work, the people you work with, your job, your career. You have uh, your education. That may be different for everyone in here. You might have a college degree. Uh, you might have gone you know, to the School of Hard Knocks. But everyone has a different kind of education. And then everyone has a different skill set. It might be working with tools. It might be you're a great mechanic. Uh, you might be a great painter, but everyone has a skill that they have developed. And then you have what's in here. And this is just whatever it is that makes you, you. It could be family background. It could be the way you were raised. It could have been, you know, your experiences. At Rockbrook, we call this your shape. It's a mixture of, of spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, experiences, it's just whatever makes you, you. Makes you different. And then we have your story. And your story is different than everyone else's story. You are unique. Nobody's bookshelf looks like you. It has been entrusted to you. There's a sense in which it has been entrusted to you. Even though you might not like some of it, you wish you had a different job, uh, you know, maybe you wish... Something wouldn't have happened to you as a child, or you would have finished your education, or you wouldn't have made that financial mistake, or uh, maybe you wish that you weren't in this family, or there's things you wish that were different, but it's been entrusted to you, and it's uniquely yours. But what's on the show isn't nearly as important as what you do with what's on the show. You know, our favorite stories, we kind of know this intuitively, because our favorite stories are the stories of the underdog. The guy who started out with very little on his show. Not much education, not much money, and he did something great. He did something spectacular. You know, we don't really go for the stories of the guy who's just sitting around waiting for something to happen. Oh, what I did is I just looked around at what everybody else had, and I just waited and just hoped that I would have the same opportunity they would. No, because successful people know intuitively that it's irrelevant what you have. It's what you do with what you have. It's true of everybody. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter what race you are. This is a fact of life. But when Jesus taught this parable, here's what he implied. He implied that if you're a God-fearing person, if you're a God follower, 
Jesus says that everything on your shelf, to some extent, has been placed in your hands by God. The good, the bad, it all came through the filter of God's love and grace and His plan for your life. And it's a waste of your time to complain about what's there and what's not there, what's, because what's in your hand and what's on your shelf is your opportunity to do something spectacular with what God has entrusted to you. Because what you have is irrelevant. It's what you're going to do with what you have that matters. You know, we all, we all will have to give an account for our life. And we get to say to Him, or we have to say to Him, we get to give an account or we have to give an account. You know, the guys that doubled their money, they were looking forward to the Master's return. They got to give an account. But the guy with one bag who buried it, he had to give an account. He was not looking forward to it. And we get to say to God, uh, we get to say to Him, not, God, if you had given me more, we get to say, God, here's what you put in my hand. I was born poor. I was born in a place where there wasn't much opportunity. And here's what I did with it. Or I was born wealthy. And a lot was placed in my hand. Here's what I did with it. And then everything in between. God, I was born with poor health. God, I was born with great health. God, I had a great family. God, I had a bad family. Whatever it is, we are responsible to one day say, or we get the opportunity to one day say to God, Here's what you entrusted to me. Here's what belongs to you that you placed in my hands while you left me here and went on a journey. And when you return, I'm going to need to give an account, not of what was placed in my hands, but what I did with what you entrusted to me. What are you going to do? This is the question. What are you going to do with what God has entrusted to you? See, every single day of my life, I'm tempted to look at everybody else's stuff on their shelf and go, if I, if only, and I wish I had that, and if I had that opportunity, if I had that much money, and if I lived there, if I, if I, if I, and every single day God is going, it's irrelevant. I don't care. You're not going to be compared to anybody else. And see, suddenly, here's what we do. We do what the guy uh, with one bag of money did. Remember what he did? He did not start off his speech saying, uh, well, you entrusted one bag of money to me. He said, well, before we get started, you just need to know this is your fault. And there's a sense in which we would never say this out loud, but there's a sense in which when we compare ourselves to other people, we're saying, God, it's really your fault. You stuck me in that family. It's your fault I wasn't able to finish my education. God, you could have arranged a better story for me. You could have given me more talent. You could have allowed me to develop more skill. You could have kept me from making that decision. And Jesus says, in the kingdom of heaven, that story don't fly. In the kingdom of God, that ain't going to get it. That's not a story you want to come telling to me. And even when you read the parable, you know intuitively, I don't want to be the one-bag guy. I don't want to be the man or the woman who digs a hole and says, well, I didn't have as much opportunity as everybody else, so why, why even try? The issue isn't what's in your hands. The issue is what are you going to do with what God 
is entrusted to you. So as we take this two-part series, this two-part sermon, and squeeze it down to two simple ideas, they are simply this, that for the rest of your life, you're to take your cue about you from the one who made you, loves you, and redeems you. Every single time you're tempted to look left or right, you say, no, 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 no. He is not my mirror. Now, she is not my mirror. And I take my cue from the one who loves me, the one who created me, the one who redeems me. And then secondly, for the rest of your life, you celebrate what God has given to others, but you leverage what God has given you. Celebrate what God has given others, but leverage what God has given you. That's it. I mean, you celebrate. God, I'm glad she gets that. I'm glad she looks that way. I'm glad they get to drive that. I'm glad he got that scholarship. I'm glad his kids are going to that school. I'm glad. I want to celebrate. But I'm not comparing. I'll celebrate what you have entrusted to them. You didn't entrust that to me. And one day when I get to heaven, I give an account for my life. You're not going to ask me uh, to give an account for anybody else's life. So while I celebrate them, I'm going to spend the rest of my life leveraging what you have placed in my hands. Maybe you need to refocus on what God has equipped and given you. And say, God, in light of that, how do I best live my life? How do I live my life in such a way that I honor you, that at the end of the day I find a deep sense of satisfaction, that I've, been get, that I've become everything you've called me to be? and done everything that you've equipped me to do. Here's the greatest thing about this. You are uniquely you. You are uniquely you. And I'm not trying to give you some kind of pep talk. This isn't that. But you see, Christians believe, Christians believe that God created you uniquely, and that everything that has become a part of your life, and everything that has gotten through the filter of God's love and grace, even the bad things, make you who you are. And every single day, if every single year day, day of your life, every single day of my life, if I could wake up and say, God, to the best of my ability, all I want to do is walk in your will. All I want to do today is walk in your will. All I want to do is be and become everything you made me to be. And so I'm going to take what you've entrusted to me, the good and the bad, and celebrate what God has given others, but leverage what God has given me. And at the end of the day, there is no win in comparison. But there's extraordinary satisfaction waking up every single day in the center of God's will for your life. Being who God calls you to be. Doing exactly what He has called you uniquely to do. Can you imagine, can you imagine what would happen in our community or in our nation, in our government, if, if just only the Christians understood and got this somewhat intuitive idea, can you imagine the difference it might make in your family? Parents, can you imagine the pressure you might take off your kids? Can you imagine how much better your marriage would be if your wife or your husband realized they didn't have to become somebody else, somebody they're never going to be, and they finally embrace who they are and who God has made them to be? Can you imagine the difference this might make? Let's get out of the comparison trap. Let's get off the comparison treadmill. 
Let's wake up every day and be who God has called us uniquely to be. That will give Him maximum glory. And what gives Jesus maximum glory gives you ultimate satisfaction. What gives Jesus maximum glory gives you ultimate satisfaction. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, it's easy to stand up here and say this. But for some of us, as soon as we walk out into the parking lot or get home or get to the office tomorrow, this is going to start evaporating. But help us, by your grace, to latch on to this important principle. God, we want to live our lives free to celebrate other success. And also be absolutely committed to leveraging everything you have put on our shelf for your glory. And give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. My hope for all of us here is that if we could be excited on that day when we get to report in, God, here's what I did with what you entrusted to me. In Jesus' name, amen.